Hello and welcome to the Beach House 34 True Crime and Paranormal Podcast. Today we are covering or continue to cover the trial of Darley Routier. And this is the reading of the trial testimony for Darley. And this is part number six. We are now on day four of the trial, which occurred on January 9th, 1997. If you've been listening up to this point, you know that the background or the whole background behind the story. So I'm not going to repeat it here again, mainly to save a lot of time. Um, if you are interested in hearing the whole background, you can listen to the entire Darley story, which started as a three-part episode and then went into her hearing to hold her without bond. And then finally, the actual jury trial, which is where we're at right now. I'll have all of the links to all of these, including uh, the links to the other trial episodes in the show notes for you. Now, the testimony that you'll hear today is from Dr. Alejandro Santos, who operated on Darley's wounds on the morning of June 6th. His testimony is quite long, and so I'll devote one episode to him and then move on to the rest of the witnesses as quickly as I can in upcoming episodes. To give you an overview of the players, I'll quickly go over some of the names so that you're familiar with them. Again, the prosecuting attorney is Assistant District Attorney Greg Davis. He's been on the case since day one. He has a team of four additional attorneys and so far, it's mainly been Mr. Davis who's been asking the questions. And whenever this changes, I will definitely let you know. And it does, actually, in this, uh, in this uh, testimony. Next, we have the defense attorneys. Um, the main one is Doug Mulder. He had limited time to prepare for the case when Darley's mother decided to seek out new counsel for her shortly before the trial began. Now, Mr. Mulder has a team of three attorneys, and so far it's been him or another defense attorney named Richard Mosty asking most of the questions. Now, in today's hearing, at least for the case of Dr. Alejandro Santos, it's another of Darley's defense team, Preston Douglas Jr. And if at any time this changes during this entire day of testimony as the episodes go on, I will let you know. The case has been moved from the Dallas area to a place called Kerrville, Texas. And I want to point out that as I read this, and you've heard this before, it's the very first time that I am reading it as well. And the only reason I say this is because today we dive into the testimony of the doctor who treated Darley's injuries when she first arrived. And this episode might run into some medical jargon and I'll do my best to pronounce what I can, but can't guarantee it will be perfect. So please just give me a little bit of uh, leeway there. With all of that said, we begin with the testimony of Dr. Alejandro Santos and the questioning it begins with one of the prosecuting attorneys, Mr. Toby Shook. Mr. Toby Shook asks, would you state your name, please? Alex Santos, S-A-N-T-O-S. And how are you employed, sir? I'm self-employed as a physician. And where do you work? In Dallas at Baylor University of Medical Center. Okay, 
Could you tell the jury your educational and professional training that you have for the position you hold, please? I attended the University of Texas at San Antonio and graduated there with a Bachelor of Science degree, then attended the University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston for medical school, and then did my surgical training at Methodist Hospital in Dallas. How long have you been at Baylor Hospital? I was in private practice at Baylor University of Medical Center in Dallas for approximately five years. And what do you do there? What were your duties there at Baylor? I specialized in trauma surgery, critical care management, and general surgery. Okay, tell the jurors what trauma surgery is. Trauma surgery has to do with dealing with patients who have suffered traumatic injuries, such as gunshot wounds, stab wounds, car wrecks, falls, and that sort of trauma. Okay, do you deal with people that are brought into the emergency room and need immediate treatment and that sort of thing? Yes, sir. That's where I get all the trauma patients. And let me turn your attention back to June 6, 1996, and ask if you were on duty in those early morning hours. Yes, sir. I was on trauma call for Baylor at that time. Tell the jurors what trauma call is. A trauma call just means that there is a specified trauma surgeon that will take care of trauma patients that night. It's usually on call for a 24-hour period. Take it about every third or fourth day. Okay, and tell the jurors where Baylor Hospital is located. It's just east of downtown Dallas. Is it a small or large hospital? Large hospital. About how large is it? 750 beds. It's a community hospital, but it's a pretty large size. Been there a pretty long time? Yes, sir. And as part of your duties, do you supervise other doctors there that help out in the emergency room? Yes, part of my duties are to help with the surgery resident training. Okay. And did you have several surgery residents in training on that date? Yes, every day there's a team of surgery residents on call with the trauma surgeon. Okay, is one of those surgeons also a Dr. Dillon? Yes, sir. Okay, were you actually there at the hospital that entire morning? Or what time did you get there? I had been there on and off during the day and I happened to be in the emergency room at the time getting ready to leave. Okay, so you're getting ready to go home when a call comes in. Yes, sir. Okay, do you recall about what time that was? Somewhere around midnight. I remember it was close to the early morning hours. Sometime in the early morning hours? Yes. Now y'all keep pretty good records there at Baylor. Is that right? Yes, the nurses keep excellent records. Okay. Mr. Toby Shook then says, Judge, at this time, we'll offer what's been marked as State's Exhibit 53-C, which has been on file with the court. Mr. Mosty then says, no objection, Your Honor. The court then says, State's Exhibit 53-C is admitted. Mr. Toby Shook says, may I approach the witness? The court then says, you may. 
Mr. Toby Shook then continues his questioning and says, Doctor, let me show you what's been marked and entered in evidence as States Exhibit 53-C and ask you to take a look at those. Do you recognize those as copies of Baylor medical records? Yes, they are. Okay. And are they Baylor medical records pertaining to Darley Routier? Yes, they are. Now, I'll just ask you to keep those notes close to you in case you need to refer to them at any time during your testimony. In fact, would the time she arrives there at the emergency room, would that be reflected in the notes? Yes, it should be in the what's called the trauma sheet. If you could just take a moment there and find that for us, please. Okay, here in the trauma records, the first time noted when she was, had her vital signs taken, which is blood pressure and those kinds of things, those are done pretty much as soon as she gets in. The time is 3.25. So that's going to be 3.25 in the morning, correct? That's when she hits the emergency room. Is that right? Correct. Now, had you been notified a little bit earlier that she would be on her way? Yes. Okay. And she was she going to be just transported there herself or was there going to be someone else also? I had been notified that there were two stab victims coming in. One was a child and one was an adult. As far as what happened, you're not given that type of information? No. Okay. What do you do to get ready to receive these two stabbing victims? Most of the time we prepare, we have several trauma rooms to take care of the trauma patients in. We usually call the trauma surgery residents to come down and help. I just happened to be in the emergency room at that time, and the residents happened to be in the emergency room at the same time, caring for other patients. So we prepared for these two patients by getting two trauma rooms ready. I sent my chief surgery resident to one room, with another lower level resident to prepare for the adult patient. And I took one of the other surgery residents with me to prepare to receive the child. Okay, and which patient arrived first, the woman or the child? I'm not sure. I know when the child arrived, he was brought directly to my room. And sometime around that time, the woman was taken to the other room. Okay, so they arrived pretty close together. Yes. But you're not sure which arrived first. Correct. Okay. The first patient you saw, would that be the child? Yes. Could you describe the child? He was a white male, about five or six years old. He had no signs of life on arrival, brought in by the paramedics. We examined him, found multiple stab wounds to the back, I examined him closer and found no evidence of life and I pronounced him dead at the scene. And did your examination take place there in one of the trauma rooms? And at this point, Mr. Toby Shook then says, Your Honor, at this time we would offer States Exhibit 52-J and K. Mr. Mosty says no objection. The court then says States Exhibit 52-J and K are admitted. And then the questioning uh, continues. Let me hold up States Exhibit 52-J first. Is this a photograph of how the child appeared as he laid there? Yes, except he did not have the paper bags on his hands when he arrived. 
were those placed there later by Rowlett police officers or by the emergency room nurses or by the emergency room nurses. Okay, but the devices here attached to him, he came in that way? Yes. Okay, States Exhibit 52-K. Does this show the wounds as you saw them to his back? Yes. Okay. And did you probe the wounds? Yes, I did. Okay. Could you tell the jurors what probing the wounds is? Just examining them. If you probe a wound with an instrument or with your gloved finger, and I did it with my gloved finger. And did you probe all of the wounds? Yes. The top three over here appear to be to go down to the level of the ribs and the muscle and stop there. But these larger wounds went into the, this one went into the thoracic cavity, which is the cavity where the lung is located. And this bottom one went into the abdominal cavity, which is where the stomach, spleen, liver, and all those internal organs are. Were these deep penetrating wounds? Yes, very deep. Okay. After you had pronounced the child dead when he got there, there wasn't anything you could do for him. Is that correct, doctor? Correct. After you pronounced him dead, did you go and see about the other stabbing victim? Well, actually, before I left the room, the other resident that was in with the adult patient came in and said, she needs to go to the operating room. So after I pronounced the child dead, I left the room and went to the other room to see the adult patient. And what was going on when you went into that room? There was a lot of people in the room. There was a lot of commotion going on, but I got a chance to see her. She had a laceration to the neck with a lot of blood on her chest and her body. And I agreed with the surgery resident that in view of those injuries, we needed to take her to the operating room to explore the wounds. Okay, now did you later come to know this patient that you saw in there as Darlie Routier? Yes, okay. Do you see her in the courtroom today? Yes. Could you point her out, please? Yes, she's over there at the defense table. Okay, the woman sitting here with the coat draped around her? Yes, at this point... Mr. Toby Shook says, Your Honor, could the record reflect that the witness has identified the defendant here in open court? And the court then says, Yes, sir. And then the questioning continues. Now you go in there, you see a, describe the wound you saw to her neck. When I walked in the room, she had a slash wound or a laceration to the neck, kind of tangentially going from the right side to the left or left side to the right across here, across this area, across her neck. And as I said, she had a lot of blood on her because the residents had already examined her. And based on my quick evaluation at the time, I felt it would be best managed up in the operating room. Okay. Tell the jurors why it's best to go immediately to the operating room with that type of wound. You don't want to take any chances with any type of neck wounds. There are a lot of vital structures in the neck. The vessels that feed blood to your brain and vessels that bring the blood back to your heart, as well as your trachea, the voice box, all those kinds of injuries can be very devastating if they're not taken care of right away. So it's usually better to go examine those in the operating room and 
get better control in case you get into trouble. All right. You do a rather quick assessment down there in the emergency room. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. And do you have certain terms or what you call zones for areas of the neck? Yes. The neck area, as far as injuries are concerned, is divided into three zones. Zone one is just kind of the lower area where your collarbone and clavicle are down. Zone two is from above the clavicle up to about where the Adam's apple is in the man, about this area. And then zone three is from about where the angle of the mandible is here on up. And that's how we describe the injuries to the neck. Zone one, zone two, zone three. This particular injury, was it in the zone two area? Yes, it was. Okay. Anytime you get any type of injury, any cut to the zone two area, do you make do you take the patient to the operating room? Yes. And you do what is called exploratory surgery? Correct. What about if it was down in the zone one, in the clavicle area? Then you have to think in about doing some studies. If the patient is stable enough and have injuries to down to zone one, then you worry about the large blood vessels coming out of the heart. That's a different approach, a different type of surgery. And if the patient is stable enough, you wait and do some x-ray studies and figure out what you need to do. See any significant cut here at all? A cut to the neck in zone two, you take them to the operating room. Is that correct? That's correct. And is that what you did with Ms. Routier? Yes, we did. All right, were you in there and helping in the performance of the surgery? Yes, I was. Okay, describe for the jurors what type of surgery was performed. Well, it's called exploratory surgery again because we're looking for injuries. We don't know what's injured yet. We took her up to the operating room, gave her general anesthetic, where she was out, we washed the wounds, cleaned this all out, and were able to look at it. Once we had her up in the operating room under the anesthetic, with everything cleaned and prepped, there was very little bleeding at that time. So we explored the wound and found that most of the bleeding had come from the veins that are located underneath the skin in kind of, in what's called sub -Q, or the fat tissue that's underneath your skin. There's a bunch of veins there, here in this neck area. Some of those were injured. We repaired those by either using the electrocautery, which is an electric type of current that coagulates the vessels, or we put some stitches in these small vessels. We washed out the rest of the wound. We noted that the wound went down to what is called the platysma, which is the muscle that kind of covers your neck here. When you do that, you can see it flexing. Her wound went down to the platysma, had a little nick in it, but did not go beyond it. So having found that extent of the injury, we washed that out and closed the neck wound. Okay, so you took her in and I guess she was put to sleep, correct? And then you take a look at this wound you have on the neck, right? About, was it just one wound to the neck? There was one wound to the neck. There was another separate wound to the left shoulder and a separate wound to the right forearm. Which wound were you primarily concerned with? 
with the neck injury. And could you tell the jurors how long this wound in the neck was? We didn't measure it, but we estimated it was approximately nine centimeters long. You say it came across partly on the right side? It went from the right to the left. I can't tell you where it started, but it extended from the one side to the other, just past the midline on the left side. Now you say that it went to the, what's that called? The platysma, is that right? Platysma, yes. And did you measure how deep the wound was? No, we usually don't measure wounds because it doesn't matter the depth of the injury. What matters is the relationship to the other structures like the platysma in the neck. That's kind of a defining boundary. If it goes past the platysma, it's considered a deep wound. Okay, so in layman's terms, this wound cut through, I guess, the skin and fat. Is that right? Correct. Okay, and the little veins that are contained in the skin and the fat? Correct. But didn't penetrate the muscle that's below the skin and fat? Correct. Did not. And in your terms, you call that a superficial wound. Is that right? Yes, sir. The medical description, that's a superficial wound. And you can't tell me that they're in the emergency room. Is that right? Right. And you don't need to take the time in the emergency room to do that. With a wound to the neck at zone two, the best thing to do is to take them to surgery and explore them there. Okay. And that's what you did in this case. Yes. And once you get in there and find it's all it did is cut through the fat and cut the veins and the fat and went down to the, what you call the platysma. Is that right? Correct. So what did you do to repair that wound? As I said, we washed it out and made sure that the bleeding was controlled and then put some sutures in there to close the wound completely and put a dressing on that. Okay, so you made sure the bleeding was controlled from these veins that were cut. Mm-hmm. And then just sewed. Did you sew Mrs. Routier up? Yes. Uh, we put what is called a subcuticular stitch underneath the skin, but we closed the wound up completely. Okay. Now, could you tell the jurors about the other injuries that you looked at? Yes. She also had a separate laceration or wound to the left shoulder and another one to the right forearm. Those were not actively bleeding. Those were not our main priority when we got into surgery. Once we determined that the neck wound was under control, we finished and we closed that. And then we turned our attention to the other two wounds and washed them out uh, determined that there was no foreign body left in there, like a piece of glass or a piece of metal from the knife, whatever had caused the injury. We determined that there was no active bleeding. Again, cleaned them out, washed them out, and then closed both of those wounds. Could you tell how deep this wound was here on the clavicle? The one, the clavicle is really the shoulder bone. This was a little bit lower than that. It went through the skin into the fat and right into the muscle and stopped there. And again, no active bleeding, so that's also considered a superficial wound. The one on her forearm down here also went down through the skin, through the fat, and into the muscle, 
But by the time we got her up in surgery and looked at it, there was no active bleeding. So we just washed that out and closed that as well. Okay. If she just had this wound here, this smaller wound here on the clavicle and the wound to the arm, would you have taken her and operated on her at all? No, those would be wounds that could be examined and probably closed in the emergency room and sent home. Just sewed up and sent home? Correct. Okay. Did you see any other major cuts on her that night that needed to be tended to? No, we examined her when we had her up in the operating room since she was under an anesthetic and we didn't want to cause any discomfort. We examined all three of those wounds that I've talked about. We repaired those. We looked to make sure she had no other stab wounds to her back or anywhere else. We did not find any other injury. You looked pretty close for any injuries. Is that right? Yes, sir. Mr. Toby Shook then says, may I approach the witness? The court says, you may. He then says, let me show you two photographs marked States Exhibits 28-A and 28-B. Do these look like the wounds that you treated on Mrs. Routier? Yes. Okay. And 28-B had, I guess, some type of strips across it. It's called Steri-Strips or Butterfly Bandages. Okay. But that's how they looked after she was treated? Yes. Mr. Toby Shook then says, we'll offer States Exhibit 28-B and 28-A. Mr. Musty says, no objection, Your Honor. And the court then says that uh, the exhibits are admitted. He then continues. He says, um, okay, could I have the doctor step down here for just a minute? And the court says, please step down, doctor. Watch your step going over there. He then, again, uh, questions. Let me caution you to keep your voice up now that you're not in front of the microphone. Okay. Let me step back here so that we can let all of the jurors see. If you could point out, I guess, does 28-B show the two injuries to the neck and then the left shoulder area? All right. This is the injury to the neck here, the laceration. And then here's the second one to the left shoulder. Okay. And this injury to the neck, it starts right up in this area. Is that right? Mm-hmm. It goes from the right, crosses the midline, which is right here. It goes to the left of the midline and stops there. Okay. This was one long cut. Is that correct? Correct. And then about how long was this cut? Probably about an inch and a half. Okay. And again, it just went through the skin and the fat here on the neck, just down to the platysma. Correct. And then States Exhibit 28-A, does that show us the wound to the forearm? Yes, that's the wound to the right forearm, extending about, if you could step back, doctor, about an inch and a half here on her forearm. Again, that was washed out. And then you could see the sutures that we used to close that. Okay, if she had just come in with that, you would have just sewn her up there in the emergency room, right? And then right above that wound, is there another wound, a smaller wound? Yes, appears to be a small laceration. We washed that out. There was no bleeding from that. We thought that that would heal on its own and did not require stitches. So it didn't require stitches, but it was a laceration. Yes, okay, you can have a seat, doctor. Okay, now doctor, 
after she was sewn up and these wounds were cleaned up, what did you do with her then? After that, she was extubated, which means the breathing tube was taken out and we put her in the intensive care unit for recovery. Can you tell us how long this whole procedure took to look at those wounds, the whole operation? I could look it up if you want the exact time, approximately an hour, hour and a half. There should be an operative record in there. Okay, she came into, was brought into the operating room at 3.40 in the morning. The operation, the actual surgery began at 3.50. We finished the operation at 4.35. That was the neck exploration. Then we turned our attention to the other wounds, as I mentioned, from 4.35 to 4.49. So if you look at the whole time of the operation, the time you examined and treated her neck to the time you finished with the other injuries, it was from 3.50 to 4.49, about an hour. And during that, while she's under, are you taking examination of any other injuries you might see? Yes, we did. Okay, and after that, where do you put her in the hospital? What is done under your orders? The patient can be taken either to a recovery room to recover from the anesthetic, the effects of the anesthetic until they wake up, or they can be put in the intensive care unit. In her case, we put her in the intensive care unit. Why did you decide to do that? My concern was, just from what little I know or knew of what happened, that I knew she had been injured and I knew one of her children was dead that I had seen in the ER. And I was told another child was dead at the scene. I was afraid that this might be a little too much for her. Plus, I knew that there would be a lot of media around and I didn't want her disturbed. So I put her in the ICU really so we could take care of her a little bit closer and protect her from anybody who might try to come in and bother her. Okay, what kind of patients are usually taken to the ICU unit? Usually critically ill patients that need to be maintained on a ventilator, the breathing machine. That's one criteria for putting someone in the intensive care unit. Someone who is unstable. The blood pressure is unstable hard to manage, someone who has multiple injuries like car wreck victims who will have head, belly, and pelvic injuries. Okay, so Ms. Routier wasn't put in the ICU because she was in critical condition by any means. No, her injuries, by the time we finished in the OR, I felt pretty clear that we had managed those and those were of no further danger to her. I was more concerned about her psychological state after all this happened, when she would wake up and about protecting her from the media and all those kinds of things. You were a concerned being. You knew what about it was a stabbing and her two children had been killed. Is that right? Correct. And you were concerned about her psychological state and how she might handle that. Yes. And also didn't want the press coming in and asking her questions. Correct. Okay, were you concerned she might, well, be somewhat unstable when she woke up from the operation? Yes, I was afraid that once she knew what had happened, that both children were dead, that she might be in a very precarious psychological state. All right, let me ask you, doctor, when someone is admitted, do you run a blood screen to see if any drugs are present in the body? 
routinely on trauma patients, particularly uh, patients involved in car wrecks, will almost always get an alcohol and drug screen to see if there is any drugs involved. On patients who are stabbed or shot or have injuries from falling, it kind of depends on who's drawing the blood at the time. Sometimes the emergency room physician will order it. Sometimes we will order it. Sometimes the nurses will draw that blood and they will get sent. Was there some testing done in this particular case? Yes, there was. She had a drug screen drawn on admission. Okay, what was found in that? It was positive for amphetamines. Okay, and do you know what particular type of amphetamines? No, all a drug screen will say is that she is positive for a class of drugs which classified as amphetamines, but it won't tell you which ones. Okay, and if a patient can talk, Do they give a medical history when they get there to the emergency room? Yes, they're asked, usually in detail, about their medical history. Okay, and those records will be reflected there? Yes, usually the emergency room nurses will get all of that information. And if Mrs. Routier was, when we talk about amphetamines, those would be included in diet pills? Yes. What is the opposite of amphetamines? Uh, what's called downers or Valium or things like that that will depress your effect. Make you sleepy, put you to sleep, that type of thing. Right. Was any of that found in Miss Routier? No, only amphetamines. Okay. Which, what do amphetamines do? As you said, they can be used in diet pills, also other kinds of amphetamines. It's usually to stimulate you. Okay. Oh, any alcohol found in Mrs. Routier? I don't remember if an alcohol level was drawn on her. And is there any way you can tell how much amphetamine is present in the body? No, it doesn't measure the level. It just says whether it's present or not. Okay, let me talk to you a moment again about the boy, Mrs. Routier's son. You didn't know his name at the time, did you? No, I did not. Did you later learn his name was Damon? Yes, okay. In 52-J, you probed the wounds in his back. Is that right? Yes. Those deep penetrating wounds, could you tell just from looking at them some of the vital parts of the body that they injured? Yes, as I said, one of them that I probed went into his chest cavity, probably collapsed his lung. I couldn't tell if there were any other injuries in the chest cavity because there was no active bleeding when he got there. He had already sanguinated. And I presume that the cause of death was loss of blood or sanguination. Okay, go ahead. The other injury that I probed, I went into his abdominal cavity, the peritoneal cavity, appeared to injure the liver. Okay, If someone, you've seen people in the ER that have been stabbed and have a collapsed lung, is that right? Yes, on few or many occasions, many. Okay, if someone is stabbed in the lung and it causes it to collapse, are they still able to make noise? Yes, okay, would they still be able to cry out in pain? Yes, okay, and that is a normal reaction when you get stabbed, yes, okay. People make a lot of noise there in the emergency room, I bet. Yes, they do. 
And is it an instantaneously fatal wound? No. To have a collapsed lung can cause some pain and discomfort and shortness of breath and trouble breathing, but it won't kill you. If you get what's called a tension pneumothorax, where there's a lot of pressure in your lung or actually outside the lung and pushing your vital organs, your heart and all that over, that can cause your blood pressure to drop and it may cause death eventually. But he did not have a tension pneumothorax because it was open to the air. A tension pneumothorax, usually it's a closed system. So when he was stabbed, he would have been capable of yelling out in pain. I believe he would have, yes. And he would have been capable of moving around some, yes. All right. Now you transferred her to the ICU unit. Where is that located in Baylor? In Baylor, it's located up on the fourth floor. We have a number of ICUs. She was taken to the trauma ICU, which is on the fourth floor. Did you, I guess after she's brought in, you are her physician, is that right? Yes, I am. And as part of your duties, do you then check up on her throughout the day? Yes. Okay. Did you go by her room later that day? Yes. I went by the ICU later to see how she was doing. Okay. And how was she doing when you went by there? Medically, she was stable. I spoke to the nurses. Her vital signs had been stable. She had no signs of bleeding from any of the wounds. Blood pressure, heart rate, all those kinds of things were looking okay. And the wounds were dry, as you saw in the pictures. No big oozing of blood or anything from there. I was happy to see that medically and surgically, she was doing well. Okay, well, let me ask you this. You wanted her in the ICU because of the facts, uh, what you knew of the facts surrounding her admittance. You were afraid of her mental stability. Is that right? Yes. If this had been, if she had come in with these same injuries, let's say due to a household accident, would you have kept her in the ICU? No, she would have gone to recovery. Okay. Would she have had a long stay there in Baylor Hospital? No, she probably would have gone home later that day. Did you talk with her? Yes. I explained the injuries that we had found, what we had done about her neck and her arm and her shoulder. And I told her that I thought she was very lucky and that thankfully we wouldn't have to do anything else. Okay. Now you talked about how you were worried about her mental health. Is that right? Yes. Have you dealt with people that have lost loved ones due to accidents? Well, due to sudden deaths? Yes. Or to sickness? Mostly trauma, because that's what I do. Something you deal with, I guess, on a daily or weekly basis at times? Yes. Okay. Have you dealt with situations where a person might be injured and in the car wreck themselves, let's say, one of their loved ones is also killed? Yes. Also, maybe someone who is just taken to the hospital and they die in your emergency room and you have to deal with the family when they get there. Yes, that happens often. And in the course of your experiences, have you dealt with mothers that have lost their children? Yes. On a few or many occasions? Many. Too many. Okay. Do you want to take a lot of delicate care when you talk to a mother about that? Yes, you have to be very careful because you don't know how people are going to react. 
you don't know how much they know to begin with and what kind of support system they have. Okay, what frame of mind were you in when you first went in to go examine Mrs. Routier after she had woken up from surgery and you went to examine her? Well, I was again happy that she was doing well medically and surgically, but I did not know how she was going to deal with it psychologically. I didn't know if she was aware that both her sons were dead. I didn't know what had happened. I didn't know how she felt about it. And so I was very concerned that she might be very unstable psychologically. Okay. And what did you find after you spoke with her? I spoke with her. She obviously knew that both boys were dead. Her husband was at the bedside. And I think she had a large picture of both boys. So I spoke mostly about her injuries. I didn't want to bring up the fact about her boys being dead. I didn't want to have to go over that with her again. So mostly I talked to her about the injuries. I kind of stayed around a little bit to make sure that I thought she was handling it okay. She had sort of a flat effect, but my main concern was that she did know what had happened and I wanted her to know that she was going to be okay. And that was about the extent of our conversation. What do you call a flat effect? Someone who has a monotone voice is obviously not excited about whatever is going on and blunt reaction to the situation, to the environment. Okay, now you've dealt with mothers in this same situation before. Yes, I have. Tell the jury how they usually react. Most of the time, mothers, when they're made aware or told that a child has died, get hysterical. Okay, even after they've known for some hours that the child is dead? Well, it's usually very hard for, especially a mother, to accept that. Yes. What types of things do you see? What are their reactions like? They cry. They usually tell me I'm wrong. They don't believe me. And they want to know why this happened. Couldn't have happened. They usually go into sort of denial and want to see the child or want me to prove or want me to prove that the child is fine. And they're usually hard to control. That's why it's good to have a good support system, husband, brother, or mother, somebody with them that can help them deal with that. And are you able to console them easily? No. You say they cry a lot? Yes, they do. And what do you mean by cry? A crying over loss of a loved one, crying over the tragedy of what has happened. And there's a lot of anger, usually, because it can be from a gunshot wound, a car wreck. It is very hard for especially mothers to face the fact that their children are dead. And there's a lot of anger and a lot of pain. You're talking about crying with tears, sobbing, that kind of thing. Yes. Tears coming down the cheeks? Yes. All right. Now, how long was Miss Routier in the hospital? She came in, I think we said about three o'clock in the morning on the 6th and was discharged on the 8th. Okay, about three o'clock something in the morning on the 6th and discharged on the 8th of June, around noon on the 8th, around noon on the 8th, somewhere around there. Did you see her the entire time she was there? Would you check on her periodically? Yes, I saw her the next day, which would be, I saw her that first day later, later on in the day. And then I saw her on the 7th 
and then on the 8th before she went home. Okay, this is what you described as she had flat effect. Did you ever see that change at all? No, every time I saw her, she exhibited the same. Okay, let me ask you, Dr. Santos, as far as all of the mothers you have dealt with in the same situation, have you ever seen anyone react this way? No, I have not. Okay, now on that day, the 6th, she had been operated on earlier in the morning by yourself and the other residents? Yes. Was she suffering from the influence of drugs, in your opinion, from the operation? No, the anesthetic drugs usually wear off after a couple of hours. I felt that that was all gone. She had some pain medicine ordered, as she should for the injuries of the surgery she had, but usually the medication that she was getting doesn't give you a flat effect. It can make you very sleepy, especially if you're very sensitive to it or if you get too much, but it usually doesn't give you a flat effect. Okay, does was she awake when you saw her? Yes, she was sitting up and talking. Appeared alert and lucid? Yes. Did she seem to be aware of her surroundings? Yes. Again, that's why I told her where she was and wanted to make sure she knew what we had done and why she had all those stitches and all these things. So she knew where she was. Okay. Now also, do you have a psychiatrist there at Baylor who are on staff and can assist you? Yes, we do. And in these type of cases, do you keep careful watch on the patient in case their services are needed? Yes. And is that something you had in your mind in dealing with Ms. Routier? Yes, that's something we that we kind of had a plan, that if I thought she was having a lot of trouble handling this, we were going to get psychiatry to come by and help her. Okay, did you ever feel you had to do that? No, okay. Did she appear to be any kind of zombie or just traumatized state there in the hospital? No, that was not my impression. My impression was she just had a flat effect and that's all I saw, okay. Now, you say she was released on the 8th of June, somewhere around noon or so. Is that right? Yes. Did you want to keep her there sometime longer? Yes, I was still concerned that maybe she hadn't reached the point where she would have more of an uncontrollable reaction to all of this. And I kind of wanted to watch her. I think it was over the weekend to watch her until like Monday. Okay, but did you ever see this reaction that you were expecting? No, I did not. Okay, and did her and her husband want to be released if possible? Yes, her husband stated that they would like to go, I think, because there was a funeral pending for the children. And I asked her if that was okay with her, if she felt like going, and she said she did. Now, let me go into another area. You as a trauma surgeon deal with a lot of people that come in here and have been in some violent altercations. Is that right? Yes. Have you treated a lot of people that have been involved in assaults using sharp weapons, knives, things like that? Yes. Okay. As part of your job, you see what we call defensive wounds. Yes, I've seen a lot of those. Tell the jury what defensive wounds are. Well, defensive wounds usually mean 
When you're trying to defend yourself, it is usually against someone attacking you, usually with a knife. It's hard to defend yourself against someone with a gun by using your hands unless you try to grab the gun. Most of the time when someone is close to you and trying to stab you and you put your hands up, it's a reaction to try to grab the knife and to keep it away from your face. So you can get defensive wounds where you have stab wounds to the fingers and the hands. Sometimes if they're trying to slash you, you bring your arms up and you get slash marks on your forearms. The wounds to the hands, where are they generally located? Usually on the fingers and on the palm surface because you usually have your palms out as to try to defend yourself. Someone's coming at you with a knife. You automatically put your hands up? Yes. Are they usually just small wounds or can they be severe wounds? It'll depend on the size of the knife. Obviously, if it's a small knife, they make small puncture wounds or small lacerations. If it's a larger knife, they then usually they can make very deep wounds into your hands. And if you try to grab the knife, they can cut your fingers in half. You can also have deep slash wounds to your forearm if you try to fight them off. Is it unusual for a person to grab a knife? Well, I don't know if I would say it's unusual. It happens occasionally when you're really trying to defend yourself. Most people would just try to push things away. Okay, you see defensive wounds to the forearms. Is that right? Yes. Okay, and where are those located? Where do you see those wounds? Usually when you put your forearms up or your arms up to try to defend them. And if they're trying to slash you, you'll see them on this part of your forearm across this way. Okay, the underneath part here of your forearm. Correct. And are they usually just one or more? No, usually they're multiple, multiple injuries to the forearm. So you'll see several slash marks horizontally across the forearm? Yes, usually. Okay, this wound to Mrs. Routier's forearm here in 28-A, is that the kind of defensive wound you usually see? No, that is not a typical defensive wound. And why is that? Again, it's a deeper wound because I examined that wound. It's not a slash wound like a knife cutting across. It's a stab wound. It usually would be, as I said, the defensive wounds would be more on this part of the forearm and they would usually, they would be across the other way, typically. When a person puts their arm up, right. Okay, now let me show you what's been marked as States Exhibit 28-D, a large photograph of a palm of a hand and fingers. Is that right? Yes. Okay, do you see some, what could be cuts there on the fingers? Yes, appear to be some slight injuries there to those fingers. Okay, is that what you would call a typical defensive wound you see on the hands if someone is being assaulted by a knife? No, normally they would be larger. Okay, larger, deeper wound? Yes, deeper. Now, I want to show the photographs to the jurors. Could you point out, in, point out the injuries you might see there to the hand? Normally, typically defensive wounds, you would see puncture wounds to the hand, to the palm, and to the fingers here. 
and they should be deeper wounds if someone is trying to stab you. Could you point on the photograph where these, there's some baby cuts located on the fingers? The injuries I see here are this middle finger and on this ring finger here, but they appear to be small. Mr. Toby Shook then says, okay, doctor, let me show you some of the other photographs which have been marked as state's exhibit numbers. And he goes through many of these, but it's essentially 52-A through 52-I. And the doctor says, okay, do those photographs. First of all, are those photographs of Darlie Routier and injuries there to her body? Yes, they are. In some of the photographs, she's in a pink shirt and specifically states exhibit 52-F, 52-G, and 52-H. Are those taken at the hospital? Yes, they are. Okay. Your Honor, we'll offer states exhibit 52-A through I. Mr. Mosty says no objection and the court then says they were admitted. He then continues to question the doctor. Doctor, in your hospital records, if you could look at the focus notes of the nurse and turn to the date of 6-6 around 4 p.m., I guess that would be 1,600 hours, okay? In fact, I may have turned that one down on the corner, doctor. Yes, okay. So it's clear you're referring there, I think, to nurse's notes that are taken there in the ICU unit? Yes, on 6-6. Is there a note in there that some Rowlett police officers and someone from the medical examiner's office came and took some photographs of Mrs. Routier? Yes, on 6 6 at 1600, it says medical examiner in Rowlett PD officer here to photograph wounds. Procedures explained to patient's husband at bedside, evidence being collected. Okay. And that would be 4 p.m. on the 6th of June. Is that right? Correct. So she's been in the hospital a little over 12 hours at that point. Is that right? Correct. Okay. Mr. Shook then says, now if I could have the witness step down and the court says you may, whereupon the witness then steps down and Mr. Toby Shook says, uh, States Exhibit 52-H, is that how Ms. Routier would appear in the ICU unit? Yes. Could you tell of what we're seeing there as far as what's hooked up to her? Yes. She has a nasal cannula outflow of oxygen. If you could just start down at this end and just kind of go along so other jurors can see. She has a nasal cannula of oxygen being delivered to her nose through these two little prongs there. That is what comes around her neck here. Here's our neck incision where we repaired that. Here's the shoulder incision on this side. And you can see the EKG leads, which are the ones that monitor her heartbeat, the telemetry unit on the sides over here, hooked up to either shoulder. And then there appears to be a line, an IV line going over to her left arm on that side. Okay, the IV line is in her left arm. Is that right? Well, it's laying over there. I can't see where it goes in. There's a bandage on the left antecubital area, left inside of the elbow, but I can't tell if the line goes in there or not. Looking at State's Exhibit 
exhibits uh, 52-F and 52-G. Can you tell that there's no IV line on the right arm? Yes, I see there is no line in the IV, IV line in her arm at that time. And those are more photographs of her in the ICU unit. Is that right? Yes. Specifically photographs of her right arm? Correct. Okay. Now, let me go to these other photographs for a moment. States exhibits 52-E, D, C, B, A, and I. Do these appear to be photographs of Darlie Routier? Yes. Okay. And is there a date present there at the bottom right-hand corner of these photographs? It says 61096. Okay. So, we can assume, at least if that's correct, that they were taken on the 10th day of June, 1996. Correct. Okay, now let's look at 52-A. Do you see a wound here to the right arm or evidence of an injury to the right arm? There's a large amount of bruising to the right arm, but I don't see any actually bilaceration. There's none, but there is evidence of bruising to the arm. Okay, and that's a pretty large bruise, isn't it? Yes. Where does it extend from? It appears to go from her wrist to right below where her hand is, past her elbow, up toward almost to into her armpit. Okay, and then 52-E. That's an even more close-up photograph of that bruise? Yes, correct. If you could take these two photographs and go along the jury rail so all the jurors can see... Okay. Now, Dr. Santos, tell the jurors what caused this type of bruising. Some type of trauma, some kind of blunt trauma, being hit, a car wreck, anything like that. Some kind of force to the arm. What is blunt trauma? Blunt trauma as opposed to non-penetrating. Uh, penetrating is usually stab wound or gunshot wound. Blunt trauma is, again, in a car wreck, uh, falling and hitting your arm, being hit with a baseball bat or something like that. Being struck by an object very hard? Correct. Doesn't break the skin? Does not penetrate. But causes these deep bruises? Yes. Okay. Is this pretty severe blunt trauma that we're looking at? Yes, it is. Now, by looking at these photographs, can you tell anything about the age of this bruise? Just by looking at this photograph, I would say that the injury is about 24 to 48 hours old. 24 to 48 hours old? Correct. And what do you see there in the photograph that's let you have that opinion? On this photograph, there is some deep bruising to this part of the arm over here, but up towards... On the upper part of her arm, the arm proper, close to the armpit, there's more of a redness over there. That tells you that this is not a very old wound. Wounds like this tend to get very dark and after about three or four days, starts turning green when the blood starts to get absorbed. But this redness up here tells me that it was probably a 24 to 48 hour old wound. When it's photographed here, Yes, at that time. And the date is 61096. Correct. Now, you had Miss Routier from about 3:30 in the morning on June 6th, 1996 
to you, say, around noon or so on June 8th. Is that right? Correct. Okay, now, y'all checked pretty carefully about other injuries. Is that right? Yes, we did. And in ICU, are there enough nurses in attendance at all times? Yes. Okay. It's not like being in a room when you're in the hospital and the nurse just checks on you once in a while. Is that right? Correct. They're right there all the time. Yes. Okay. And you examined Mrs. Routier several times on her stay there. Yes. Examined the wounds that you sewed up? Yes. Okay. And before she was released, do you examine those wounds? Yes. Routinely, we'll look at the wounds just to make sure they're healing okay. Did you see at any time while she was in the hospital any injury that would cause this type of bruising? No, I did not see any evidence of that. Okay. Is this something that you would have been if it had occurred on June 6th? Let's say at 2.30 in the morning, 1996? Yes, I believe we would have seen some evidence of that before she left the hospital. Okay, a person, when they get blunt trauma, they don't bruise. A huge bruise doesn't immediately form, does it? No, sir. A little bit of time occurs. Is that right? Correct. But to get this type of bruising, do you see some evidence of it pretty soon afterwards? Yes, you mean if you had something that would create that, how soon would you see it? Right, right. Usually within 24 hours, it will show up. The bruise will show up. Yes. And even when you first receive the person, would you see some type of injury to that area that would later on cause this type of bruising? You may. Uh, most of the time you do. Sometimes you cannot see the evidence in the beginning, but most of the time it's pretty evident. Okay. Now, you never saw any evidence of that type of injury to the right arm on her stay on the 6th, 7th, or 8th of June. Is that right? Other than the stab wound that we talked about earlier, no, I did not see any other type of injury. Okay, let's take a look at State's Exhibit number 52-F, which is a photograph of the arm wound. Is that right? Yes. Okay, first of all, would a stab wound to the arm in that area cause that type of bruising? It can cause bruising usually around the wound. Okay, but nothing like this in 52-E. No, I don't think this type of wound would cause that type of injury. Okay, and again, 52-G shows the arm. Do you see this blood here? Is that more injury? That's blood from her wound up here. This was taken in the ICU, and this is just dried blood. As I said, when she first came in, she had a lot of dried blood all over her. This is not indicative of the injury. This is dried blood from the injury to her arm. Okay, so that's just dried blood left on her arm. Is that right? That's correct. Do you see anywhere in State's Exhibit 52-FHG any evidence of the injury that would cause the bruise seen in 52-E? No, I don't see any evidence here that would show what caused that. Okay, and again, you thoroughly checked her stay in the hospital. Is that right? We checked her very carefully when she was in the operating room. That was our best chance to do that while she was under the anesthetic. And then we had the nurses do dressing changes on her afterwards. Okay, and before she leaves, you 
yourself and the other residents checked her. Is that right? I went and talked to her. I did not examine all the wounds the day she left. Okay, but you never saw this type of injury? No, I did not. And have you looked at the nurse's notes and other medical records regarding Miss Routier? Yes. Would the nurse make notes if they saw any type of injuries? Yes, that's part of their duties is to find injuries that we may have missed. And certainly something like this would be something I would expect the nurses to point out to me or to the other doctors before we sent her home. So you didn't see this injury at all? No, I did not. And you say, by looking at these photographs, this type of bruising looks like something that occurred in the last 24 to 48 hours. Correct. Not a four-day-old bruise at all. Is that right? Not in my opinion. Okay, so if we can kind of look at this photograph being taken on the 10th day of June, would you say this injury did not occur on the 6th of June? At this point, Mr. Hagler, part of the defense team, says, I'm going to object to leading and repetitious. The court then says, overruled, go ahead. The witness then says, would you repeat the question, please? If we assume that this photograph here in 52-E was taken on the 6th day of June of 1996, is there any way that bruising could have occurred, that injury that caused this bruising occurred at 2.30 in the morning on June 6th, 1996? I don't believe so. Okay, all right. Is 52-M a photograph of Miss Routier and an injury? Yes. Mr. Toby Shook then says, we'll offer state's exhibit 52-M. Mr. Mosty says, no objection. The state says, or the court says, state's exhibit 52-M is admitted. Mr. Shook then says, okay, again, can you, 52-M, is that a photograph of bruising there to the left arm? Yes, it shows some bruising to the left arm around the wrist area extending down toward her elbow. Again, doctor, if you could start maybe down at this end, you can come on down. Okay. And again, doctor, is 52-N a closer up photograph of that wound? Yes. Mr. Toby Shook then says, we'll offer states 52-N. Again, no objection. And then it's admitted. Doctor, the bruising we see here on the left side, is that the same time of type of blunt trauma injury that we saw to the right arm? It appears to be. All I can tell is that there's some bruising there. I'm not sure what caused that. You can see a little closer here than you could on the other one. Okay. Anyway, did that look like a fresh bruise or could you tell that particular end? On this one, it's hard to tell. Most of this, this echiomatic bruise, sorry for that, is smaller than the one on the other arm. And it's hard to tell whether the edges are fresh or not. On this photograph, it's hard to tell how old it is, but it's at least 48 hours old. Now, the injury that we see here on 52-E, the right arm, you've treated people that you see bruising if they've been grabbed hard or something like that. Is that right? Correct. Okay. Maybe a man grabs a woman and pulls her around. Would that leave bruising? Yes, it can. What type of bruising is that? It depends if he grabs her with his bare hands and grabs her on the forearm. He can leave the imprint of his fingers and his thumb on the forearm. Okay. 
Did you, as far as the injury to the right arm, is that that type of bruising? No, the bruising that you showed me in these photographs on her arm appears to be more of a deep bruise. Again, what we call blunt trauma, something striking the arm, very possible. Okay, thank you. You can have a seat up there. Doctor, would an IV in any way cause a bruise like that? I don't believe an IV would cause bruising like that, no. That's blunt trauma? Yes, it appears to be. Mr. Toby Shook then says, that's all the questions I have. I'll pass the witness. And then the court, Mr. Douglas, um, gets up to cross-examine the doctor. A doctor, in terms of Miss Routier and how she acted while she was under your care, obviously you have other patients. You weren't able to be with her the entire time. That's correct. And how many times do you think between, say, the sixth and when she was discharged that you went and checked on her? Three times, once each day? All right. And in contrary to you going by three times, she would have been under the care of nurses throughout that time. Is that right? Correct. And would you agree that those nurses in some instances would have had better opportunity in some cases to view how she's doing, how she's feeling emotionally? Yes. Okay. May I approach the witness, Your Honor? You may. Doctor, if you would refer to your notes, uh, first, there's the admitting history and physical sheet. It should be toward the first part of your record, which has a drawing, right? Okay. And under general, can you read what was noted by the nurse and signed off on by you? Yes. Do you see where that says, quote, general? Okay, if I may correct you, that's not signed by the nurse. That's signed by my resident. Okay, under general, it says, quote, young W, what stands for young white female, tearful, frightened. So when she first came in, she was noted to be frightened and noted to be crying some. Is that right? Tearful? Yes. And then further back, look at June 6th. The admitting the nurse's notes? Right. Going back to the admitting nurse's notes. It should be earlier in the timeline. My copy is bad, but I'm guessing that that time is before 5.15 in the morning. I'm sorry, is that the ICU or the emergency? Look at the focus notes on June 6th, 1996, prior to 5.15 in the morning. Okay, on the 6th, you say? Yes, sir. If I could show you, that's the admitting nurse? Yes. And then I'm showing a date of June 6th, 1996, admitting nurse. And what I'm showing you, does this appear to be a copy of the records that you have? Yes, they are. And you see where I have highlighted for your convenience some nurse's notes. Yes, I do. Can you read who signed that? I'm sorry, I can't read that name. It's followed by RN, by abbreviation, it's one of our nurses, but I don't know what the name on it is. Is this admitting nurse? Well, not necessarily the admitting nurse. It just means that's the person who admitted them. Yes. All right. And what notation is made there? You have highlighted, it says, quote, crying visibly upset. Okay. And then later in the same day at 730, psychosocial, 
there's a note for psychosocial. Is that correct? Correct, yes. And that's meant specifically to address her emotional state. Is that right? Correct, yes. And am I right? Did you find that in the notes? I found it. Look, okay. Does it say, quote, the patient is very emotional? Yes. There are periods of crying, sobbing, talking about events in her family? Yes, that's what it says. Okay, all right. So when you said to the jury that you were surprised that she had a flat effect, then obviously there are nurses that did not see what you saw, but saw a very crying, emotionally upset woman and made psychosocial notes because they thought it was significant enough that a reviewing doctor should look at it. Correct. Did you look at those notes? No. Well, you were her attending physician. Is that correct? Yes. So if you're trying to make if you're trying to make a determination as to how she is progressing, there are nurses writing notes to you that are telling you, quote, she's visibly upset, she's crying, and she's emotional about the events she just went through. Is that right? They're not writing notes to me. Those are the nurse's notes. Those are the nurse's notes that are telling you she's visibly upset, she's crying. Usually the nurse will give me a verbal review. The point being, it's a history that's being made for the benefit of whoever it is. In this case, obviously not intended for a jury, but from these notes at the time they were made, how this lady was acting. Is that right? Yes. And is it safe to say that there is notes that throughout the day on the 6th, she was visibly upset? Is that right? Those two notes? Yes, sir. Okay, well, first there was the admitting note that said she was tearful and said she was scared. Is that right? Or frightened? I'm sorry. Correct. All right. So first she's scared. And then there's notes early in the morning that says she's visibly upset and emotional. And then there's another note. And these are all noted by nurses who are paid and yes. Okay. Look on the next page where the notes. Okay. Let's see. Do you remember doctor prescribing Miss Routier Xanax? Yes. Now I can't find that in here. But you remember, you do remember calling that in, right? I didn't call it in. I wrote it on her discharge orders. I added it to Dr. Dillon on her discharge orders. And when I came by and spoke with her and her husband, they requested that I went ahead and ordered that. So it's on my discharge orders. Okay. Well, she was given Xanax before the discharge. I believe it was ordered by one of the other physicians. We can look in the... All right. Well, just let me show you. Later on that same day, on the 6th, which looks like 1645, so towards 4 or 5 o'clock in the afternoon. Is that right? Correct. Okay, can you find where it's noted anxiety? Correct. All right. And she was given 25 milligrams or 0.25. She'd be out if it were 25 milligrams, right? Well, it should be 0.25. Okay. Okay. 0.25 milligrams of Xanax given to decrease, is that an arrow going down? Correct. To decrease anxiety. The point of that is to decrease anxiety, right? Yes. And it says that the patient, Ms. Routier, is unable to relax. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Now there's lots of notes. You would agree that these injuries that she received are painful injuries. Is that right? Yes. 
And you see there's lots of notes where they're, the nurse that is treating her notes pain and actions taken to lessen and care for the pain that she was experiencing. Is that right? Yes. Okay, for instance, the wound to her arm on the left side. Is that right? Yes. The right side, right forearm. The right arm went down to the bone. Is that right? It did not injure the bone. It went through the muscle. All right. In your records, I believe it says it went to the bone. I'm not meaning to say it struck the bone, but it did say it went to the bone. I did not write that. It may be in there, but it's hard to tell. You're not quarreling with that, are you? No. And certainly you would expect that to be a very painful injury, right? Yes. And now in talking, when you first, let's back up to the beginning. When you first saw Mrs. Routier, there was no question. And in your admitting, well, actually, it's in your discharge summary. Do, do you see that? Let me find that. Okay. I found it. In your discharge summary, you noted that Ms. Routier had a large, what you described as a slash wound. Is that right? Correct. This is a discharge summary dictated by Dr. Dillon, which I signed. Yes, it says she has a large slash wound. All right. Well, you signed it. You approved it. Is that right? Yes. And you described, or Dr. Dillon described, and you approved his description that she was actively bleeding from a large slash wound. Correct. Now, that was the first scene that any doctor saw was an actively bleeding woman who had obviously lost a large amount of blood on the front of her shirt. Is that right? Correct. Now, you also gave her, either on discharge or upon when you admitted her, I don't know exactly where it is, but you gave her a diagnosis of post-trauma anemia. Is that right? Yes. Now, post-trauma anemia would be from a severe loss of blood. Is that correct? Correct. Any loss of blood will make your numbers go down. Medically, that's defined by certain parameters. And if your blood count, your hematocrit specifically, is below normal, then you're by definition anemic. All right. But in any event, what you described it was, and I can't say the word, it's post-hemorrhage. Well, it's post-hemorrhagic. Right. Hemorrhagic anema. Correct? Right? Close. Yes. So I try to say it post-trauma, right? Same thing? Well, post-hemorrhagic just means she's bled. That's why her blood count is low. Post-trauma doesn't necessarily mean she's bled. You can bleed internally, et cetera, et cetera. But post-hemorrhagically, post-hemorrhagically anemia specifically means you're anemic from loss of blood. All right. But in any event, you noticed that that diagnosis was made and that she had to be looked after because she was suffering from anemia. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Now you mentioned in, I guess it was an operative report, that the wound, and you're not, let me just ask you this, you're not attempting to give the jury, and I think you were very careful to say that you're not attempting to give the jury any type of opinion about directionality of the wound. Are you? Correct. I cannot, you have no opinion about that. No, sir. You have no opinion about self-inflicted or directionally or anything like that. I cannot tell. You can't tell? Right. Is that right? Yes. And you were the first trained medical person to look at this woman. 
Is that right? Well, Dr. Dillon and the paramedics, right? Right. But the first person to treat her and look at her closely, that was you, right? Yes. All right. Now, when you referred to the midline, you were referring to the center, am I right, of her neck? Right. The center of her neck. All right. And if I remember right, your notes say that the wound was higher to the right side of her neck and that it was deepest on the lowest or the left side of wound. I'll have to take a look at the notes. Please, I could be mistaken. Were you talking about the operative records? That's what I'm looking at now. I'm not sure if there was any mention of it. It was deeper on one side. I don't recall anyone saying it was deeper on one end or the other. I don't see it on the operative record. Was it somewhere else? Okay. Well, in your recollection, was the wound deeper at one point? Well, it was a little deeper, if I recollect correctly, on the right side. Okay. And you said that the wound penetrated the platysma muscle. Is that right? Yes. And in the operative record, it says at one point, the laceration appeared to extend to, but not through, the carotid sheath, which covers the carotid artery. Is that right? Correct. Now, the carotid sheath, doctor, would that be a membrane or how would you describe it? It's a connective tissue, sort of a membrane. Yes, that would be the best way. Is it thin compared to... How many millimeters? It's probably two or three millimeters, which is pretty small. And is it true that this wound at that point to the carotid sheath came within two millimeters of the carotid artery? The artery? Sheath. I'm asking the witness the sheath first. The witness then says, you said it's an artery injury to carotid sheath? Mr. Douglas then says, on the records... It says it came to the carotid sheath, right? Now, the carotid sheath is two or three millimeters thick. Is that right? Correct. Okay. Okay, so it came within two millimeters of the carotid artery. Correct. Okay, now, inside the sheath is the internal jugular vein as well as the artery. Is that right? Carotid artery. Correct. All right, now... When you said to Mrs. Routier, quote, you're very lucky, I'm going to see if I can try something. I may not be able to demonstrate this, but I want to show how lucky she was. This is, it seems to be a common ruler. Is that right? Yes. And it's got inches on one side. It's got centimeters on one side. Is that correct? That's correct. Now, the centimeters don't start at the blunt end of the ruler, right? But am I right that this will be two millimeters? Yes. Okay. So if I understand your testimony, that it's two millimeters from nicking the carotid artery. Is that right? Yes. Or the internal jugular vein? Yes. Actually closer to the carotid artery because they lay side by side. Okay. Closer to the carotid artery. Well, I'm not very adept at demonstrating this, but anybody can look and see that these two lines are what it would take to hit the carotid artery. Now, if a carotid artery is severed, doctor, what happens? You bleed profusely. Is that often, if not fatal? Certainly fatal. If it's not controlled immediately, yes, it can be fatal. 
And when you say immediately, you're talking right then, right? Within minutes. So when you told Mrs. Ruchier that she's a very lucky lady was represented in just these infinitesimal two lines are what you declare the difference between superficial and a fatal injury? No, I mean, we don't differentiate between superficial and fatal. There's superficial and deep. Are these two lines away from being potentially fatal? Yes. Two millimeters. Yes. Okay, so if this knife had traveled two millimeters more and immediate attention, when you say immediate, I mean, what are you talking about in time? Two or three minutes. So without any immediate care, in three minutes, she's dead. Correct. Now, when you saw her at the hospital, you did not scrub for the surgery. Is that right? No. And you had made a determination that Dr. Dillon could handle it. Well, actually, Dr. Lee, who was the chief surgery resident, was doing the surgery. Dr. Dillon was assisting him. And you applied pressure and you stopped the bleeding by applying pressure to her neck? Yes, I did. That's what you did? Yes, I did. Okay, now, I want to talk about your termination of a slash. You've seen, I'm sure, a number of injuries to the neck by sharp-edged instruments. Is that right? Yes. And is it safe to say, and you're familiar with the term incised wound, obviously, correct? An incised wound is a wound that is stretches longer in length than it is deep. And is it typical that if someone is going to inflict the maximum amount of damage to the area of the throat, it'll be done in a slashing motion in an attempt to cut the jugular vein and the carotid artery? Correct. So when you see wounds to the neck, you don't expect really a straight-on deal, straight-on type. What you expect is a slashing motion. Is that right? I would say that's more typical on a neck wound, yes? Okay. Now, when you say more typical, you're a careful doctor. I understand that. I've listened to you testify, and you're familiar with the terms reasonable medical probability. Is that right? Yes. Now, can you define that for the jury? Once you look at whatever evidence you have or clinical evidence you have, you make a decision whether something, an event or an occurrence, in your opinion, would be medically probable when you weigh it against all the evidence. It doesn't mean it necessarily happened that way, but that more likely that that's what happened or that that's what would happen. Okay, now... It wasn't asked of you, but have you couched your opinions based on a reasonable medical probability? I'm not sure I understand your question. Well, there are things a doctor can say that are consistent with something or expected or maybe my opinion, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's to a reasonable medical probability. Do you appreciate what I'm saying? I think it's a fine line, but yes, I appreciate what you're saying. Okay. So what it means is a reasonable medical probability is the level of convincing that a doctor has, and sometimes you can give an opinion, but you're not willing to say, I'm going to say that to a reasonable medical probability. Is that right? Correct. Okay. Now, the operative record, and I think what you testified to was an hour and 15 minutes that Ms. Routier was under general anesthetic. Is that right? 
Well, I didn't, I'd be glad to look on the anesthesia record as to how long she had anesthesia on board. What I was looking at earlier when they asked me was the time we actually began the operation, neck, arm, and shoulder, that went from 3.50 to 4.49. All right, well, let me ask you, doctor, maybe in the discharge record you made, you used the term in the discharge summary that she was emergently taken for neck exploration. I'm assuming that emergently means with all haste. Correct. Yes, sir. Okay. And if you make an immediate decision that the person has to have surgery, I'm assuming that anesthesia would be administered to the patient as soon as possible upon arrival to the emergency room. I mean, operating room. Correct. No reason to think that she would have sat in there 20 minutes before she would have been administered anesthesia. That's right. There's no reason to think that. Well, based on your usual custom and happening of the OR on someone who is emergently brought into the OR, would you think that perhaps they were administered anesthesia as little as five minutes after they arrived? Probably even less than that. Okay, so when you say it's an hour and 15 minutes that the person was under surgery, is it safe to say that for sure an hour and 10 minutes of that, that she was under general anesthetic. Yes. All right. Now, I believe your testimony was that you would expect a person to be under the effects of general anesthesia for up to two hours, two to three hours. Yes. Two to three hours. Yes. And that she was, what time do you recall that the surgery ended and that she was brought out of surgery? Well, the official time that the surgical procedure ended was 4.49, as I said. The time the anesthesia ended was 5 o'clock. Okay, so she was in effect beginning to come out of the effect, or let me back up. There was no additional anesthesia being administered to her at 5 in the morning. Correct, that's when it stopped. Okay, so at that point, the anesthetist says that's it. And she should begin to that three-hour process of coming out of the anesthesia. Is that right? Correct. Now, would you expect that if someone had talked to her, say at six o'clock in the morning, that she would be groggy and still under the effects of anesthesia? She may. Yes, sir. When you say may, all people are different. Is that right? Correct. Now, talking about the anesthesia, isn't it also true that she was very soon after coming out of the operation room that she was ordered up or you ordered up for some Demerol? It was ordered in the post-operative period, I believe, by either Dr. Dillon or one of the other residents. But I know she did have some Demerol ordered for pain control. Yes, sir. Okay. Now, would that have been administered to her if it's ordered post-operatively, does that mean, doctor, that it's administered to her right away? It's usually ordered PRN, which means whenever necessary. The nurses usually make that designation. If a patient says, I'm having pain, there's a time limit placed on it. We usually will say every three to four hours. Whenever she gets her first one, really depends on the nurse's assessment or evaluation, but it can be right away. Okay. Do you see anything in the nurse's notes as to when the first dose of Demerol might have been administered to Ms. Routier? The first thing I see here is a note from the ICU of 6696 at 6 o'clock 
she was given 25 milligrams of Demerol and 25 milligrams of Phenergan IM. Okay, and what's Phenergan? Phenergan is an anti or medication that keeps you from being nauseated or vomiting because the Demerol can make you nauseated. Okay, what all can Demerol, can Demerol make you groggy? Yes. Can Demerol cause you to be heavily sedated? Is that the right word? Yes, it would mean the same thing, groggy, sleepy, drowsy. If a person comes out of general anesthetic and at six o'clock they're given Demerol at that dose that you just indicated, wouldn't that aggravate the effects of the anesthesia? It would obviously depend on the patient's condition, underlying medical problems, if they have any. If made, if they were having trouble getting rid of the anesthetic effect, however, however, the Demerol dose, really, this is just a small dose because she is a small woman. Right, but you're not saying it couldn't. No, it may. It may. Yes. Okay. And in that situation, if you think that she would still perhaps experience the effects of general anesthesia from five o'clock up to three hours, which is eight o'clock in the morning, certainly, doctor, the Demerol administered at six o'clock would either aggravate or prolong that. Is that right? Yes, it could. Okay. So she could have still been groggy even past eight o'clock. Is that what you're trying to say? She could, yes. Could general anesthetic, in your experience, lead to confusion? Yes. Can it lead to disorientation? Yes. Can it lead to short-term memory loss? Yes, I suppose it could. Yes. Would you agree, doctor, that to be questioned sometime before 8 o'clock in the morning of, let's say, 6.05, hypothetically, to be questioned about various serious events at 6.05, one hour and five minutes after anesthesia being cut off, would you be somewhat suspect as to the response you may receive from a patient? You may get an unreliable response, yes. What I mean by that is you may get a response that's subject to disorientation, memory loss, confusion, all of those things that you said could be prevalent with a patient in that situation. Is that right? Well, that could be possible, yes. Okay, would you please read for the jury the 605 focus note entry? Quote, 605, psych, social, Rowlett police to bedside for questioning. So within an hour and five minutes after she is, now she's in ICU and you put her there so she would not be put under stress. Is that right? Correct. Well, did you say there weren't supposed to be any police officers there? No, I said, do not let the media in. Well, did it matter to you if people started immediately one hour after surgery, start questioning her? Would you have recommended that? I would not have recommended that, no. Now, would you also suspect or be suspect of the results you might have received due to the combination of general anesthesia and Demerol, which she received five minutes earlier? I'm sorry, would you repeat the question, please? Well, am I right? I don't have my notes with me. Am I right that she received Demerol at six o'clock? Yes, she did. She had just terminated general anesthetic at five o'clock. Correct. So then one hour and five minutes of general anesthetic for an hour and 15 minutes and a dose of Demerol. And she is then, and she then is questioned about the events surrounding this attack. Would that cause you to be suspect 
of what she may have said based on the amount of medication she's taken. It could, yes. Okay, now, while we're on that subject, let me ask you a little bit about trauma. You've seen numerous people who have been the subjects of traumatic attacks or traumatic events, maybe automobile accidents. Is that right? Yes, I have. Well, let me, one thing Mr. Glover mentioned in my ear, when you've talked to mothers about accidents many times, that denial and that wanting to see the body and the things you talked about, isn't it true, doctor, that these people who did not witness their child murdered, I mean, that someone who may have come up after an accident didn't see the event that caused the death of the child? Yes, in some cases, yes. Okay, so when you were saying, quote, I've got to explain what happened to some of these parents, well, certainly you have have to explain to the parents if they didn't see what happened, right? Right, all right. And wouldn't you naturally assume that if, you would naturally assume that if someone knew the cause of death of their child, that they may not be something you would have to explain to them. You mean in general, I would assume that? Well, let me go on. All right. Talking about trauma, what we were talking about earlier and the fact that you had seen numerous people who were the events, the victims of tragic trauma, either attacks or automobile injuries. Is it common for people? And I'm not talking about the anesthetic now. I'm just talking about, is it common for victims of traumatic attacks to block out and have memory loss as to the event that caused their accidents, their injuries? Well, I would not say it's common, but it does occur. Well, have you seen it? Yes, I have. And you've witnessed it in what is in a percentage of your patients such that you can say it can happen? Yes. All right. And that could be traumatic memory loss as to even the cause of an injury. Is that right? Yes. It could be memory loss as to not only the cause but what the person was doing before the injury or what the person was doing after the injury. Is that right? Yes. All right. In short, doctor, the mind has a funny way of tricking a person when they've been through a traumatic event. Is that right? Yes. Okay. In fact, what happens is the mind compensates for the injury. Is that right? Is that a term you're familiar with? I'm not sure what you mean by compensates. Well, in effect... It may create, it may block out an effort to, how am I trying to say this? A person goes unconscious many times, not necessarily because of the injury, but because of the shock. Is that right? That's right. So in effect, your mind takes over in a reflex action, which protects the body. The person goes unconscious, right? That can happen. All right. That's what I mean by compensate. Okay. The mind compensates for the injury in a way. Yes. Okay. So it doesn't surprise you that a person that is the victim of a very traumatic injury or attack would have significant memory loss as either to the cause of the attack. Is that right, doctor? It wouldn't surprise you? Well, I would have to qualify it and say that most of the times I've seen that has been a patient with head injuries. But when you say most, that means there's another significant amount of patients. You have seen thousands of patients. Is that right? Yes. Okay, so if most is 60%, then that's 600. 
then there's 400 other people you've seen that have had other types of reactions. Is that right? Yes. All right. And those people have had reactions that may have blocked out their initial perception of what happened to them and the cause of the injury. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Doctor, there's no way that you can say that Darley Routier was not unconscious at any point. Is there? There's no way I can say, you mean during the event? You can't rule out that she lost consciousness. I can't rule it out. Correct. All right, Dr. Santos, with respect to the bruises, there was one bruise you noted that said could be greater than two days old. Is that correct? That's correct. It could be up to four days old. Is that correct? Anywhere greater than two days. Yes. It could have been four days old. Could have been. And wouldn't it be highly unlikely that you would get a blunt trauma injury that could be four days old on one arm and not get it at the same time as the other injuries? I would think it would be unlikely. So this one could be four days old. This one, it is likely, was created at the same time. Is that right? But it doesn't look as old as the other one. Well, that's your opinion? Yes. And reasonable minds can differ. Is that right? Correct. And you're not saying a reasonable medical probability. That's your answer. That's just saying that's what it seemed like. Correct. But likewise, it's your same opinion that this one is two days old and you just told the jury it could be four days old. Correct. All right. Now, Talking about bruises and things, what everyone was dealing with and what the notes refer to are wounds to the neck, a severe, well, a slash wound, a large slash wound to the neck, not to use other words, yes. And all of the records of the nurses that you see in the records seemed to be focused upon dealing with how that neck wound and also the arm wound are coming along. Is that right? Correct. All right. It doesn't say anywhere how her feet are doing, her knees are, her legs. There's just no reference that they're fine either. Is there? Correct. I mean, there's nowhere to say we didn't notice anything to an arm or we didn't notice anything to a leg. Well, but the focus notes, by definition, are supposed to point out abnormalities, not comment on the norm. Okay, I understand that. But isn't it also true that with everybody busy and a number of patients and in fairness to just the way things go, that there is things that are missed occasionally? Is that right? Yes. Okay, was Miss Routier cooperative with you? Yes. Did she seem to appreciate what you did for her? Yes. When I first spoke to her, yes, she did. She was anxious to get to the funeral. Is that right? Well, her husband was anxious. Well, I don't know if she was. And families want to be together during times of grief. You know that. Certainly. Is there any question in your mind that a person with a flat effect that can be synonymous with depressed, could it not, doctor? It could, yes. Flat effect is a term of art. It means just kind of stone-faced, 
Is that right? Correct. And a stone-faced person could be a person you would not rule out as deeply depressed and grieving. Correct. You cannot rule that out. So the fact that someone has a flat effect, that person, I mean, you can't make any extra polation from that, can you? Right, you cannot. At this point, Mr. Preston Douglas has passed the witness, Your Honor. Mr. Toby Shook, again, part of the prosecution, steps up and says, just a couple of questions, Judge. And he begins to question the doctor. As far as the two bruises, the one on the left, you say that might be a little older. Is that right? Correct. But this bruise on the right, the one we've talked at some length about, that is, in your opinion, 24 to 48 hours? Correct. Okay. And again, would you or the nurses spotted this type of trauma if it had occurred on 2.30 in the morning, June 6th, 1996? Yes, I believe we would. You never saw that type of injury on her right arm, did you? No, I did not. And as far as the nurse's notes go, those are focus notes that focus on what? On things out of the abnormal, not on normal. Those nurses in the ICU are very thorough, aren't they? Yes. They check for injuries and how the patient is doing. Is that right? Yes, that's their job. Okay. Now, as far as Demerol, what is Demerol? Demerol is a narcotic that's administered usually for pain relief. Okay. And you said that she was given that around 6 a.m., I think, or so. Yes, sir. Six o'clock. Yes, sir. The first time she was given that was on June the 6th? Correct. And how much was she given? 25 milligrams. Okay. Is that a large or small dose? I would say on the average, it's a medium dose. Okay. And did the nurse administer that? Yes, the nurses administer all of the medications in the ICU. They're trained in that. Is that right? Yes, they are. Now, Mr. Douglas had asked you a number of questions about whether a person would be groggy, waking up from the anesthesia, and also getting some Demerol. And you said, could be, maybe. Is that right? Correct. Does it just depend on the person? It depends on specific how your metabolism will process medication. If you're ill, older, et cetera, et cetera. Some people might be groggy and some people might be very alert. Correct. It just goes person by person basis. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Now you didn't see her there at 6 a.m., did you? No, I did not. You didn't come until sometime later in the morning or so. Approximately. I think it was in the afternoon actually when I saw her. Okay. And when you saw her, she had what you call flat effect. Correct. Okay. But you didn't feel she was suffering from grogginess, from drugs or anything, did you? No, I did not. Okay. You've seen that many times before. Yes. All right. Now, as far as memory loss goes, you say that you've seen people that have had some trauma that had memory loss. Yes. And usually what type of trauma do they have? Usually it's the motor vehicle collisions where they have a closed head injury. Okay. They smash their head real hard. Correct. Okay. And what type of memory loss do they have? Usually what's called retrograde amnesia 
where they don't remember something that's already happened. Usually they're in the hospital, in the ICU or emergency room, and they have no idea how they got there. They were driving home and now they're here. They have retrograde amnesia for what happened. And it's that kind of event of amnesia that they don't remember what happened around that time. They just don't remember what happened or why they're there. Correct. It's not selective amnesia, is it? No, usually it's they block out the whole thing. Okay, you don't just pick one part out and can't remember that part, is it? No, I have not seen that. They just don't remember what happened at all. Correct. And that's usually a closed head injury? Usually, yes. Now, did you see any evidence on Ms. Routier of a closed head injury? No, we did not. Okay. And the Xanax. What is Xanax? Xanax is an anti-anxiety drug that can be taken to help patients when they have anxiety attacks. Does that mean like when they get nervous and so forth? Yes. And do you prescribe these in uh, these types of situations? No, I do not. I usually do not prescribe this kind of medication. A lot of patients, the trauma patients, if they're anxious, usually they have a reason to be anxious because they've been injured, car wrecked, they lost a car, lost a loved one, etc., etc. And I usually don't prescribe it. Now, in this case, Ms. Routier did get some Xanax prescribed to her. Is that right? Yes, she did. And while she was in the hospital, some was given to her. Is that right? I believe it was, yes. Do you recall when that entry was? I can look here. I believe she received some that first day. Let me see if I can find that. I remember, here it is, 6696 at 1645, which is 445 in the afternoon. She was given 0.25 milligrams of Xanax given by mouth to decrease her anxiety. Okay, so on June 6, 1996, she's given 2.5, no, 0.25 milligrams. 0.25 milligrams of Xanax for anxiety. Correct. In fact, that's how they term it in the list. Anxiety, right? Correct. And can you tell the jurors the entry before that on 6-6, what time is that entry made? 1600, four o'clock in the afternoon. Okay, and could you read that entry, please? Quote, medical examiners and Rowlett PD officer here to photograph the wounds, procedures explained to patient, the patient's husband at bedside, evidence being collected from both husband and patient. And that's at six o'clock? Right. And then at 645, she needs the Xanax for anxiety? Correct. Okay, now as far as what you have described as Miss Routier, her reaction to the loss of her children, what you saw and comparing that to the other mothers that you've seen, have you ever seen a reaction like that? At this point, Mr. John Hagler steps up and says, Your Honor, we've been through this. We'll object again, repetitive and leading. Mr. Toby Shook then says, Well, I think they brought it up. And the court then says, Hold on just a minute. I'll let him answer the question if he knows the answer. Go ahead. The witness then says, I'm sorry, repeat the question, please. Mr. Toby Shook then says again, as far as this flat effect, the way Ms. Routier reacted to the loss of her children, have you ever seen that reaction in a mother before? No, I have not. 
Okay, doctor, let me show you what's been entered in for record purposes as States Exhibit 31-A. And let me draw your attention to the upper left-hand corner. Is that a reasonable, accurate representation of how the wound, cross-section of the wound of Ms. Routier's neck wound was? Well, let me see. A close representation? Yes. Okay. And that's what we're talking about. The neck? Yes. And again, States Exhibit 31-B, the upper right-hand corner, is that also an accurate representation of, I guess, a cross-section, you would say, of the neck wound and the injuries she received? Yes, that's a good representation. Mr. Shook then says, then we'll offer States Exhibits uh, 31-A and 31-B for all purposes, Judge. Court says, any objections? Mr. Douglas says, no. And then the court uh, allows those to be admitted. Mr. Toby Shook then says, that's all we have, Judge. The court says, Mr. Douglas, anything? And he says, yeah, sure, Judge, just a few questions. So then he begins his recross. Um, so do I understand what you're trying to say, Dr. Santos, is that no one who is grieving should have moments of quietness, moments they feel depressed, or moments they should be flat? No, I did not say that. All right. And isn't it true that an hour or so ago, I pointed out to you notes of nurses who wrote down in their notes that they observed her acting just as you expected her to act. Is that right? Mr. Toby Shook then says, Judge, will object to asked and answered. The court then says, overruled, go ahead and answer the question. Mr. Douglas then says, thank you, Judge. The court says, let's get all of the questions out and let's get them answered. This gentleman has to leave. All right. Mr. Douglas then says, let me re-ask that. The point is, there are at least three references in the notes where Mrs. Routier acted just like you would have expected her to act. According to the nurse's notes, yes. Well, you trust the nurses, don't you? Yes. So the fact that you saw her three times, but the nurses who were with her, who were there with her and watching her closely, noticed she was frightened, she was tearful, she was anxious, she was emotional and upset. That's exactly what you expect, isn't it? Yes. All right. And you're not trying to tell this jury that the three visits that you made to her is the sum total of this lady's reaction to this trauma. That was the sum total of my impression. It's based on three visits. Correct. Duration of those visits, doctor? Five to 10 minutes. Okay. So the opinions you made that this lady doesn't act like any mother you have ever seen is based on 15 minutes of contact with this lady. Approximately, yes. Okay, in fairness to this lady, do you think that's fair? Mr. Toby Shook says, Judge, I'll object to that. That calls for speculation. The court then says, I'll sustain that objection. Go ahead. Mr. Douglas says, I'm sorry, that should be sustained. I take that back. I apologize. They're telling me to stop. I'll pass the witness. The court then says, thank you. Either side have any further questions? Toby Shook says, nothing further, judge. The court says, thank you very much, doctor. Mr. Toby Shook says, may this witness be excused? Uh, the court then says, do both sides agree? Mr. Mulder says, subject to our recall. The court then says, all right, ladies and gentlemen, we will conclude the testimony for today. If everybody will please calm down over there, we will excuse you until tomorrow morning at nine o'clock. Regardless of what you hear on the radio, this court will be here tomorrow morning at nine o'clock. Thank you very much. See you then. 
All right, everybody, that will do it for this episode of the Darley Routier trial. Um, up next, we actually have something interesting. It's a gag order discussion, and it's actually based on the testimony that we just heard. Um, that will be coming up very shortly. And then we have the testimony of the other surgeon or doctor that worked with uh, Dr. Santos, Dr. Patrick Dillon. From there, we then have uh, a few other people who are going to testimony and I'll get or going to testify and I'll get into those a, a little bit later as we get into the the other episodes. But with all that said, as I'm going through my notes here and I'm um, I just made just some things that were uh, really interesting because at first when I thought personally, that the reason that Darley was in the ICU, uh, for example, I thought she was in there because of her injury. I had no idea that it was because the doctor just specifically put her in there more for privacy purposes uh, rather than her uh, injury itself. However, it was then mentioned how close the wound was on her neck and how close she came to actually bleeding out, to bleeding to death. I also had no idea. I mean, I did know it was two millimeters uh, away from the carotid artery. However, I did not know that if that had been cut, she would have had two to three minutes, maybe, uh, before she entirely uh, bled out. Another thing that came to mind was um, at the very beginning of this testimony when the doctor was talking about Devin and about his injuries and that he could have called out even with his injury and could have likely even moved around, um, which we know from looking at some of the photos of the uh, blood spatter and so forth that he did move around. Um, if he did call out, why was he not heard? Um I'm only bringing this up now because I'm sure, like I said, I have not read through the rest of the testimony. I don't know, but I'm absolutely sure that the defense will bring this up in the future when it's their turn. The other thing that I found really interesting was that uh, Darley got out of surgery uh, just before or around five o'clock in the morning. And it takes somewhere up to three hours to come out completely of the anesthesia that you're put under in surgery. But just an hour later, she, in my opinion, uh, must have been awake at least uh, to request pain medication. And they had given her pain medication. And then at 6.05, the police officers are there questioning her. The doctor says that he personally would not have even recommended that. And just a few more things from the the notes as I re-listened to the whole thing as I was editing it. Um, I was curious about like the large picture of the boys that Darley had with her in the hospital. And I'm just more curious about this. This is really neither here nor there regarding guilt or not guilt or anything like that. But it was my understanding that as soon as the crime occurred, the police blocked off the house 
And this was a large framed photo of both of the boys. Now, it could have come from her mother. It could have come from, you know, any place. But if it was in the house, how did someone get in the house to to get it if it was blocked off? The next thing that kind of struck me was that they said that the or the doctor actually wanted to keep her until Monday in the hospital and keep an eye on her. But that at first it was mentioned they were both anxious and they being um, her husband, Darren and Darley were anxious to get out of the hospital in order to attend the children's uh, funeral, which is, oh my gosh, totally, totally understandable. But then the doctor says that the, the husband was anxious to do that. So I wonder if, you know, Darley had the same thought So just, again, another question, neither here nor there, just very curious about that. And lastly, I'm very, very curious. And again, I'm sure the defense team will bring this up when it, when it comes to be their turn about this bruising. Uh, If you've seen the photos, um, you can find them at darlyfacts.com. There's some photos of her bruises on her arms that are referred to in this particular testimony. And they're pretty severe. Um, I'm really curious as to where these came from. The doctor said they were only about 24 to 48 hours old. Um, Again, the defense team may bring on somebody else that that says differently. Uh, But they are very severe. And according to this doctor, um, it came from blunt trauma, uh, which is, you know, being severely hit with something. So, you know, again, just curious, wonder where these came from. Um, Anyway, that'll do it for this episode. I look forward to continuing on with this to get even some of these questions answered for myself. And as I said, the next episode will focus on the gag order discussion, which is something that happened um, based on the testimony of Dr. Santos that you just heard today. And then we'll get into the testimony of Dr. Patrick Dillon and then move on further with the rest of the uh, the folks. So anyway, thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for being a part of the Beach House 34 family. And I would love it so much if you could please give a like or a subscribe. It helps so, so much. Thank you. Thank you.